I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap. Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. Howard, That's you... the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I've always felt a really special bond with Christopher, and that's because he's my first younger cousin. Um, And I've loved him from the very beginning. He is so full of life. He is so creative. He is a joy to have around at all of our family gatherings. And when he's not there, his presence is really missed. He's also just genuinely very articulate and thoughtful about everything he does. That is journalist Amanda Cupido's take on her teenage cousin, Christopher. Meanwhile, this was Christopher's take on himself. I'm going to be homeless. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to live in poverty for the rest of my life. Uh, Just basically enjoy the childhood where I can leech off my parents because once I move out, it's struggles and poverty till I die. Okay, when Christopher said this, he was on the verge of finishing high school. Or trying to. So, kind of a pivotal time for him in the whole career department. And he was freaking out a bit, clearly. At this point, Christopher had spent a long time thinking that a career, or any kind of stable life for that matter, was never going to be an option for him. In fact, we are not sharing Christopher's last name. It's different from Amanda's because he's worried that prospective employers might Google him and not want to hire him because of what you're about to hear. But he wanted to share this story because a little-known resource in the Ontario school system may have changed everything for Christopher. And it could be at risk. I'm Macy Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. Today, we've got two stories about people who each struggle to do certain things that many others take for granted. And how they've made it through. Coming up, a favorite from the vaults. Doc Project producer Kent Hoffman's award-winning documentary, Walk This Way. If I wanted to tell someone one thing to help them understand me, I'd tell them that I think about walking all the time. For me, walking requires focus. If I don't pay attention, I end up on the ground. But first, a story about education and survival that starts in Ontario, but has implications for how we help kids when they're struggling across the whole country. Here's Amanda Capito and Christopher. Happy birthday, Amanda. Just calling to wish you the most merriest of birthdays. That's my little cousin Christopher leaving me a voicemail. Well, call us when you get this. We want to wish you a happy birthday in person. I say little, but he's actually taller than me now. He just turned 19. And for his birthday, my brother and I took him out for his first legal drink at a bar. But he didn't have any friends joining us. I've watched him grow up, and I know he's always found it tough to make friends at school. People just didn't notice me, didn't stick to me. There was nothing I could do about it. But, like, I even joked that I was so invisible, not even the bullies noticed me. For the record, Christopher is not easy to ignore. 
Every time our families get together, he's always toting around something that makes him stand out. A fedora, some sort of flashing saber, and most recently, it was a pair of slippers that looked like he had a slimy dead fish on each of his feet. I love that about him. He's got one of those big personalities, but being himself at school hasn't been easy for him. I am in grade something. Honestly, at this point, I don't even know what they call it anymore. I don't blame him for not knowing anymore. Christopher is in the midst of finishing his final semester of high school, but he had a very unconventional learning journey in the Ontario school system. I hated school from the get-go. I hated it. Everything about it was bad. It, it was maddening. He was the kid that, that worked outside of the box, right? So he saw the world in a different way, which was amazing, but didn't fit in a lot of times with what other people expected of him. That's Christopher's mom and my aunt, Maria. So uh, in JK, junior kindergarten, um, we just noticed that he wasn't reading really common words like even I or and. Uh, he, he couldn't understand those words and he couldn't, you know, say them as he read them. And his kindergarten teacher came up to me and I asked her, I said, listen, what's going on? I'm, I'm really concerned. And she said, it's all behavior. <laughs> he can read. He's just kidding. He's fooling us all. And that was the start of a spiral for us because I believed her. I remember hearing about my cousin's struggles at school. My whole family heard about it. There were always stories about him not cooperating in the classroom or even running away in the middle of the day. We were convinced he needed stronger discipline, mostly because that's what the school was telling his mom. So basically when he told them, I can't read that, and they didn't believe him, he was disciplined. And then Christopher retaliated. <laughs> He's like, okay, well, if you don't believe me, then I'm not gonna listen to you. So then the behavior started escalating. And so then they said, look, look at the behavior. So then they all focused on his behavior and not what the root cause was, was that, listen, I'm he's saying to, in his little voice, he's trying to say, I can't read this. I don't know how to read. Please help me. <laughs> and no one was believing him. So poor Christopher was kind of like on his own. So then as his behavior escalated, they took a lot of terrible measures. Like uh, his teacher got the janitor to come in and yell at him <laughs> to scare him. That happened in junior kindergarten. Then when he was five, he was diagnosed with ADHD and mild autism. But even after that diagnosis, he was still being heavily disciplined for his behavior. There was an incident in the following year, so when he was in grade one, where he was carried into a small room and left there by himself as a timeout. Christopher saw a spider and was convinced it was poisonous. He spiraled. I've reached out to the school where Christopher says this all happened, but those teachers have since left and the principal is different, so they couldn't comment. This moment is still tough for him to talk about today. Little did we know, there was a deeper issue at the core of all of this, and what it came down to was Christopher wasn't getting the support he needed. It's so heartbreaking because I, I say to Christopher, I failed you as a mom, you know, um, because I didn't step in. I believed the school system. I believed Christopher had a problem with behavior, and he was stuck in this world. And no wonder, no wonder now he doesn't want to go to school. No wonder now he has low self-esteem and he believes he really can't read. Woodcraft, woodcraft, 
club, woodcrafting club, with the opening to become involved involved in the party. Last summer, I recorded Christopher reading a book I gave him. At the time, he was 17 years old. And the very idea was quite imagining, imagining, matching. Christopher struggled with reading and writing all throughout elementary school. It's just like you don't understand anything. They're just these odd squiggles on a piece of paper that you know have great meaning, but you just can't ascertain the meaning. They're just squiggles to me. I don't understand what they mean. I'll have to stare at it just to even like attempt to figure out what something says. I just always just wasn't able to get it. I was always looking at these people who are reading. I'm like, how are you doing this? What magic? What like celestial powers are you tapping into to to perform this witchcraft to understand like this these scribbles the reason for this is because christopher is dyslexic he was diagnosed when he was around 10 years old after a substitute teacher flagged to his mom that she should get him tested as soon as i got that diagnosis we started uh, uh, discovering or learning about the world of dyslexia, which isn't easy because every time I went to the school officials and said, please, do you guys have a program about dyslexia? Do you have an expert who deals with dyslexia? I would get, sorry, we don't recognize dyslexia. So it was kind of up to us to uh, figure out the world of dyslexia and, and go online. At this point, it was 2012. Dyslexia was not new. The disability was first identified back in the 1800s and was referred to as word blindness, and about 10 years later, labeled as dyslexia. Interest in studying it waned for a couple of decades, but picked up again in the 1960s until today. Now, there were a lot of early misconceptions about the condition, including people thinking that it was caused by some sort of brain or nerve damage. Now we know that's not the case, but the causes are still unknown. What we do know is that it's neurobiological, which means the brain develops and functions differently. Typically, people with dyslexia have problems with phonological awareness, which is the ability to recognize and manipulate the spoken parts of sentences and words. Despite all this research, the Ontario Ministry of Education and many school boards still to this day do not recognize or use the term dyslexia. Instead, it's lumped into a broader category of learning disabilities, and rarely, if ever, are there resources set aside for teachers to identify, intervene, or remediate dyslexia. I don't even know how that substitute teacher was able to spot it back in 2012, but thank goodness she did. Unfortunately though, even after the diagnosis, Maria found it tough to find reliable resources to help Christopher learn how to read. We were completely lost you know it was like we're on an island right and uh we had no supplies right so we we didn't know what to do even as his cousin i didn't understand the full scope of his struggles i always thought of dyslexia as people mixing up letters sometimes or not being able to remember phone numbers have you ever seen those egyptian little translation sheets where it's like 
decoding like a language. Like you have all these symbols and you have the A and then you have to put them together, right? So like hieroglyphics. It's kind of like that, except you don't have the cheat sheet. You just have to remember. As Christopher progressed throughout elementary school, his mom was supporting him at night with materials she found online and some that she even paid hundreds of dollars for. But she says it all felt like a lost cause. Every year in the school system, they're like, don't worry, we'll get him to read. We'll get him to read. Now, according to the Canadian Reading Clinic, about 15 to 20 percent of the population has dyslexia. Many of them are able to read and write, but Christopher suffers from an extreme version and was not given the tools at a young age to deal with it. I wish we found this out when he was younger. If I could only go back, but I can't. In recent years, the Ontario Ministry of Education has gotten a lot of pushback for how they support students with dyslexia, or the lack thereof mostly from parents like Christopher's mom. In October 2019, the Ontario Human Rights Commission launched a public inquiry looking at issues affecting students with reading disabilities. They've spent the last two years collecting information. The final report will include recommendations for school boards about curriculum, early screening, reading interventions, accommodation, and systemic issues. But until then, students like Christopher continue to fall through the cracks. The school system labeled him as a special needs student. It meant he was exempt from assignments or had them modified. So when he got to high school, he was still illiterate. As his peers dreamed about what they wanted to be when they grow up, Christopher started to worry more and more about how he'd survive as an adult. I'm going to be homeless. I'm not going to make it. I'm going to live in poverty for the rest of my life. Uh, just basically enjoy the childhood where I can leech off my parents because once I move out, it's struggles and poverty till I die. This is heartbreaking to hear him say. And of course, I've always believed he was a bright young man with lots of potential, but he didn't see that for himself, especially because he found himself in countless situations where he didn't even know how to break the news to people. Do you know how embarrassing it is to like tell someone that you can't read? Like at school, like someone shows you a meme on your, their phone and you either have to pretend it's funny and laugh or tell them you can't read it. Or like when they so many times teachers ask me up to, to read something from the class and then I have to say I can't. Sometimes I make excuses. Uh, I just say no. I think when I was a kid, sometimes I just say no, thank you. And even after he told people he trusted, it still posed a problem. They just casually bring up reading something and then they're like, oh yeah, that's right. You can't read because it's just, it's just so common. You don't even realize you're, you're engaging in something that would exclude me because I can't read it. Because it's just so natural. You look at a word, you identify it. It's second nature. You almost can't stop it. But I can't do it. And it baffles people. I'm even guilty of this. I told you I took him out for his 19th birthday, right? Well, as soon as we got to the bar, I passed him a menu and told him to order whatever he wanted. He stared back at me blankly. I completely forgot he couldn't read. I felt so bad. But even though he still struggles with things like reading a menu, last year, things took a turn for Christopher. For the first time, he started to learn how to read and write after he began attending an Ontario demonstration school. 
The demonstration schools were created in 1979 to build capacity across district school boards. Uh, learning disabilities was a new diagnosis at that time. It was newly identified. And so to build capacity on how to remediate and work with students. That's Desiree Gorin. She's the former principal of Christopher's Demonstration School and one of three schools like this in the province. These are schools for students with the most severe forms of learning disabilities. It's the district school boards who refer their students to us after everything else has been tried. The schools are under the Ministry of Education and have students between grades 5 and 12. I think our learning environment can be best described as an immersive academic and social experience. Uh, We have a complete wraparound multidisciplinary team that supports our students. Um, We have special education teachers. Those are classroom teachers who are trained in special education. We have uh, student support counselors, educational assistants, and resource teachers. Additionally, we have um, access to speech-language therapists, a social worker, a learning technology advisor who helps us with all things computer-related, a consulting child and adolescent psychiatrist, as well as a consulting psychologist. The students also live at the school, almost like a university residence. This is meant to help make the programming accessible to students across the province and continue that wraparound support. But many people in Ontario don't even know these schools exist. Christopher's mom only found out about it after she called the provincial government to raise alarm bells about Christopher's struggles. And I demanded that someone do something for me. I wouldn't get off the phone. And so someone said, have you heard of this program? And they gave me the number of the demonstration school. I do not understand how this phone number is not in everybody's book. (laughs) From the principals to the special ed coordinators to the social workers that go visit into the school system. How is this program not in everybody's, uh, you know, minds when it comes to dyslexic kids? At this point, Christopher was technically in grade 10, but it took him another year to get him into the school. It was a lengthy process to get in. It's like a job interview. You gotta, you gotta submit a, a portfolio. You gotta have interviews with all these heads of the board, school boards, and uh, it was scary for Christopher. But we were really determined. And once we got in, we were thrilled. And when we met the staff, it was just such a refreshing novel experience because we've never had that before people understood people came up to christopher and said we believe you we are gonna help you don't you worry because you can read (laughs) and we've never heard that before something about the people at the demonstration school it felt like they understood me more it felt like they they were a lot more like able to empathize with me Christopher remembers sitting in class with about nine other students and the teacher walks in to begin the reading and writing program. Even like the way she just walked in, introduced herself. I I don't know how to put it. It was just very different. I think it was she was walking in knowing full well that this this was a very revolutionized like kind of program. And she knows that this was just going to blow us out of the water. She was like, oh, almost like a kid like gonna show you a surprise or like something something they did that they're proud of. Yeah, that's what it is. She was proud of the work she was gonna teach. Desiree explains that teachers are seconded to teach at the schools and get special training to help students with these kinds of learning disabilities. 
The goal is for them to bring that knowledge back to their homeschools. But the demonstration school offers a different kind of learning environment. Although our students all have learning disabilities, it's not um, uncommon for them to have different gifts and different uh, areas of interest. So um, diversity is welcome. Um, I would say our students are valued for what they can bring to the learning environment rather than all the years possibly that the focus was what they couldn't do or what they, the skill maybe that they had not achieved yet. So I think we're looking at it from what they're bringing, the assets, the interests, the strengths. In terms of other areas of our learning environment, we offer learning accommodations. That can be in the form of extra time for students to um, complete their work or to uh, learn a skill. Our students actively participate in choosing um, where their courses go in terms of the subjects or the areas of exploration or the projects they pick with regards to their extracurricular activities. If we were doing a science project, for example, the students would be able to choose what area of that science topic they would want to pursue first, uh, and the teacher would respect choice and uh, direction with regards to what they'd like to learn and uh, how, you know, just we would guide them along their learning journey. I've walked through the hallway of a demonstration school. There's a morning bell, a cafeteria, and students hustling throughout the halls with their backpacks. It looks just like any other public school, except once you peek inside the classroom. Sometimes there are the yoga balls that are available or the rocking chairs that uh, many students like. There's also a stand-up desk. Uh, Students have choice of, you know, some people like to stand up, some people like to sit when they do their work. There is a lot of portable uh, technology available. There are computers that are uh, desktops. So I would say that however the student prefers to learn, that uh, modality is available. The curriculum is also unique. It fits in with the provincial one, but incorporates a framework called Empower. It was developed by the Hospital for Sick Kids Learning Disabilities Research Program about 15 years ago. The Empower Reading Program is a holistic program, of course, that uh, helps students with severe learning disabilities decode reading. So there are strategies embedded in this program. The instruction around those uh, strategies would be a metacognitive plan. Always asking the students, so what do you need to decode this word? Look at the word. What strategies can we use? When can we use them? How can we use them? Part of this framework also includes breaking down each sound in the English language. There are 44 sounds Christopher learned. Ing. G. J. A or all, ooh, oh. And the easiest way to explain it in power is like for normal people, they just start reading. Like that's pretty much it. Go forth, start reading. But in the demonstration school, they're going over the sounds. I, oh, you'll more baby out. Club, skunk. Now I'm able to pick up on certain small words really quickly, so I won't even have to sound them out. Uh, Not memorization, but just like a quick, like, first couple of, like, letters, automatically I know those sounds, so I can put together the word of my head without having to sound it out, which is huge. Because that means I've read a lot of, like, quick things, 
So now when I'm playing my video games, I finally can see how much people are telling me off. Like, oh my good, that's some salty language. Oh my, my, my. Never noticed that before. Ted, nice. Because they're woman, people, woman. He was trying his strategies, and that's what you were hearing. And successfully, I would say. And it's ongoing practice. It's like anything else that needs muscle memory. Um, students with severe learning disabilities um, can lose their muscle memory for reading if they don't keep practicing and keep reading. Bubble, ale, kill, and cow. And that was reading with Christopher at 3 a.m. Have a wonderful morning, miss. Yes, uh, 3 in the morning, right, Christopher? And we know why we're tired in the morning. <laughs> That's funny. Yes. So I think what we saw there was uh, warming up with the basic sounds, uh, getting um, practice in after school, not necessarily in the wee hours in the morning, but people, you know, are, are programmed a certain way. If that's when they want to do it, that's fine. Christopher has always been a bit of a night hawk, so I'm not surprised to hear this. But this is also what made school more enjoyable for him. The fact that he could approach assignments in his own way. He would have four or five classes in a day, just like a traditional high school, but the main difference is that assignments in one class would count for multiple courses. For instance, if he had to do a research report for science, the writing component would be graded separately and used towards an English credit. The demonstration school also encouraged the use of assistive technology, so like devices that do speech-to-text and vice versa. After only a few weeks at the school, Christopher was flourishing. Oh, it was a delight uh, working with Christopher. Everyone at the school would say the same if they were here speaking to you today. Um, they would all agree that Christopher arrived at Trillium School quite an able and talented young man. He was an amazing student. By the end of his time with Trillium School, he was seen as a community leader. He had started uh, various clubs on his own, believe it or not. Um, he was a confidant to many students. They would seek him out wanting to uh, discuss their issues with him. And Christopher, it, it's kind of funny, when students would want to chat with him and run things by him as a confidant, he always would share that he was honored that he was given the privilege to help those students. It really felt like every, like, you know, those TV shows where like everyone knows everyone. It felt like that. Like all my years before, it felt like, yeah, I could, there was a couple of teachers I could talk to, but I felt like completely alone other than like my family. Like now I felt like I was in a community and I haven't had that feeling really anywhere else. The, the counselors there, they became second family. Now, it wasn't perfect, of course. Christopher did his second year at the school online because of COVID, which came with its own set of challenges. But he says the teachers always seemed invested in his learning. Christopher was enjoying school for the first time. He ended up earning several high school credits at the demonstration school, including his grade 11 and 12 English, which gave him a chance at graduating high school and pursuing a post-secondary education. The demonstration school also it gave me faith that you know, even if I don't learn how to read, maybe I will at least be able to hold a job. Maybe I'll find a way to make it. Now, the school typically only admits students for one year. Christopher spent two years there because of the COVID-19 disruptions. I wish that he could do his, all, his whole high school program 
uh, with the demonstration school. I think that would have been better. That's Christopher's mom, Maria. She says she's thankful he got the two years that he did, because while the demonstration schools have been around since the 70s, there always seems to be a looming threat that funding for the schools will be discontinued by the province. We were always told by the staff at the demonstration school, pray to God that we're still open next year. Because <laughs> you never know what's going to be cut. And in my eyes, that meant, you know what, nobody values this program because it's just a few kids, right? And it's costly, so why are we doing it, right? Again, it's now validating their their issues and really not valuing them as people trying to learn in the system that's not made for them. Christopher completed his last course virtually through the demonstration school in July 2021. That takes us to August. Now he's preparing to head back to his regular high school. He needs three more credits to graduate. Um, trying to forget school exists so I could not have an anxiety attack every two seconds. I'm worried that the work is going to be horrific. That's going to suck so much time out of my life. Uh, that it's just going to be gray and depressing, monotonous, like it was. Christopher started in the fall and quickly realized his few friends had already graduated. It was a punch in the gut for him. But he enrolled in his final three courses and applied for a behavior science program at a local college. I asked him what keeps him going. Stopping would basically mean dying. And you don't want that, so you keep on fighting for the hope, the prayer that something will come. And I guess in my case, my prayer was answered, as I did get a shot at demonstration school, and they gave me so many credits, which is they're really the only reasons why I'm actually going to be able to graduate. And then hopefully I'll get through college, and then hopefully... With my assistive technology, I'll be able to make a life for myself. Late last year, my family celebrated a belated Thanksgiving. Oh, you need any of those things in there? Oh, I'm so sorry. As we all started heading to the table for dinner, I asked Christopher how school was going. He tells me timidly that he got into college. I freaked out. I shouted the news. Christopher got into college! Everyone started cheering and clapping. It was so sweet. He was blushing. I know he's still nervous about what this will entail, but I'm so happy he's getting a chance to pursue his dream job. My dream job is, like, trying uh, to become, like, a school social worker or some kind of counselor or uh, one of the people who, like, helps special needs people at school. Basically, some kind of job that aligns with talking to people with my words, with the goal to help them. You know, the demonstration school, it really showed me that, like, I had a real, like, genuine talent to be able to talk to someone else and empathize with them and relate to them and give them good advice or, and if it's a situation where you can't really give advice on how to help, just help them get through it, and help support them. And it made me realize that I could actually do that as a job because I'm a man of very few talents. But that, that is definitely one of them. That Doc was produced by Amanda Cupido. 
It was edited by Jennifer Warren and Sherry OKK with me, AC Rowe. And I have got some big news. Earlier this week, the Ontario Human Rights Commission released its Right to Read report. This is the report Amanda mentioned. It's based on two years of public inquiry, looking at issues affecting students with reading disabilities. They've made a number of recommendations. Among them, a call for the province to provide stable funding for reading intervention programs and to make those programs easily accessible. The ORHC has also recommended that the Ministry of Education, faculties of education, and school boards explicitly recognize the term dyslexia. In response, the Ontario government has said it will revamp its approach to literacy in schools. So far, no word on a timeline. For Christopher's part, he has been doing well. He's now taking a full slate of courses for his first semester in college. He has an academic accommodation, which means he can get extensions on assignments and extra time when writing tests and exams. For now, he's attending virtually, but Amanda tells me he is looking forward to stepping foot on campus and starting this new chapter of his life. Okay, up next, a favorite from the vaults. Producer Kent Hoffman's award-winning documentary, Walk This Way. We will be right back. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror, we learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. So growing up, I always thought there was something different about me. Um, For some reason, I was just really bad at sports. This is Doc Project producer Kent Hoffman. I remember in school there was this national program called the Canada Fitness Awards. It was a national fitness program in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s, run by the Canadian government. Students could win a gold, silver, or bronze medal, well, actually a sew-on patch, in six different athletic events. And if you couldn't win a patch, there was, haha. A participation pin. Kent ended up with a whole collection of them. And I just won the same participation pin year after year. And I I used to imagine what it would be like to win a bronze patch just one year to wear on my coat. Some of my classmates would walk around with years worth of patches. And they they just look like 10-year-old five-star generals in their jean jackets. I used to dread the Canada Fitness Awards. There was one specific event around grade three... That sticks in Kent's mind. It was the day we were doing the 50-yard dash, and I was actually really looking forward to it. It was a a sunny spring day, just the perfect day for medal winning, or at least winning a patch. And I got up to the starting line, it was on your mark, get set, and on the teacher's whistle I was off. And I just, I gave it everything I had, and the soccer field around me was just flying by me, and I felt great as I crossed the finish line. And the teacher clicked her stopwatch and looked at me and said, You gave it half an effort. And I I was sure that half an effort must have been another way of saying amazing effort because I just ran so hard. But I soon realized when she said half an effort, she really meant no effort. And some of the sports commentators in the schoolyard certainly had no problem sharing with me that my running was really slow. And I remember being really confused by it. It it, it just felt so fast to me. And I, I really did run my hardest. But I never would get a gold, silver, or a bronze patch. 
And Kent was pretty much an adult before he understood why. The story you're about to hear, it was originally released in May of 2020. And while Kent never won a gold, silver, or bronze patch as a kid, he did take home a bronze New York Festival's Radio Award for this documentary last year. Here's Kent. If I wanted to tell someone one thing to help them understand me, I'd tell them that I think about walking all the time. For me, walking requires focus, where I place my feet, how to keep my balance, how to avoid falling. With every step, I take a quick glance forward and then down, forward and then down, always on the lookout for anything that could make me trip, or if someone staring at their cell phone is about to knock me over. On long walks, there's no real getting in the zone like a long-distance runner. If I don't pay attention, I end up on the ground. Falling's not that bad, really. I've always done my own stunts. And over the years, I've figured out how to fall without hurting myself. It's getting up again that's the problem. Like some veteran boxer who's taken one too many punches, it takes everyone in my corner to get me back up. Around my senior year in high school, something unusual showed up in a blood test. After visits with doctors, trips to hospitals, and in a few years' DNA tests, I was diagnosed with something called Becker muscular dystrophy. I'd never heard of it. It's a progressive muscle disorder that affects the skeletal muscles. Those are the ones you need for movement, so a lot of them. It's a milder version of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but like a lot of people, until my diagnosis, I didn't even know there was more than one type, and I certainly didn't know any of their names. The type I have, Becker's, affects 1 in 35,000 men worldwide. So it's rare, they told me, but it doesn't seem so rare when you're the 1 in 35,000. Why couldn't I have won a raffle instead? I remember this literal feeling of a pit in my stomach when the doctor first said the words muscular dystrophy. I knew something was up, but that wasn't the answer I was expecting. They said there was no real treatment, no cure, and they didn't have any real answers. It would progress over time, but nobody could say how. I didn't know of anyone else with muscular dystrophy, so it seemed like there was no one to ask. One pamphlet they gave me at the hospital stated hopefully that many were able to walk until age 35. But still, along with that diagnosis came this strange sense of relief. There was finally a reason for all those participation pins. The only thing I really knew about muscular dystrophy came from watching those Jerry Lewis Labor Day telethons that ran for years. Those programs raised a lot of money and I'm sure he meant well, but it was a damaging view of disability that was pretty common at the time. Don't tell me you can walk in the street because you're healthy and your children are fine and you pass a dystrophic crippled in a chair. Don't tell me that you don't step to the side slightly because it is a little horrendous. Don't tell me you can walk by and not give a damn for that child in that chair. You do give a damn. Well, it's a discomfort for you. It's an annoyance to you then I defy you not to do something about it. Let's clear the streets of those obstacles and those annoyances. All you have to do is make a pledge and give us some money and let's rid the streets of those little things that get in the way of your pleasure or, ple or your pleasant day. It sort of portrayed people with muscular dystrophy as victims who should be pitied. 
people who couldn't possibly get by without the charitable help and attention we gave them just once a year on Labor Day. It was that image of disability that scared me more than the disease itself, so I hid from it. When I was first diagnosed, I was still walking pretty well, so I didn't think of myself as disabled. But what actually began for me was a lifetime of trying to hide it. I'd convinced myself that this was the best attitude, that there was kind of a strength in being stoic. I was diagnosed when I was about 17 and just becoming an adult. After that, I didn't bother seeing a doctor again for 10 years. Eventually, I did have to start dealing with muscular dystrophy. I couldn't run anymore, not even slowly. It was getting harder to climb stairs. But what I was getting better at was hiding it. By this time, I was starting to fall, so the time and effort I put into hiding it became even more exhausting. During a night out with friends, I would explain these sudden falls by saying I had a few too many. At family gatherings, I would slip in through the side door so no one would see me struggling to get up the front steps. I'd turn down invitations to sports events or concerts with little explanation because I didn't think I could manage to get to the seats without a railing. I'd say no to dinner invitations at restaurants and old buildings where a trip to the washroom might mean navigating a rickety set of stairs to the basement. About 10 years ago, a friend of mine was having a patio party after work. She lived in this third floor walk-up with two long narrow flights of stairs to get there. But her apartment had this great rooftop patio with a kind of funky spiral staircase leading up to it. I'd been to her apartment a few years before in the winter, and I knew climbing those stairs was going to be really hard. But that rooftop patio? I just knew I couldn't manage to walk up a spiral staircase going straight up. And I'm sure everyone there would have been willing to help, but the thought of having all my work friends awkwardly trying to get me up those stairs was just too much. Yeah, sorry, I can't make it. One of my kids has a thing tonight, I told her. It sounded like an excuse. She looked disappointed. I was disappointed. So why didn't I just tell her? I know she would have understood. But I just didn't want to make a friend feel bad because her great rooftop patio wasn't accessible. Hardly anyone at work knew I had trouble with the stairs because I'd never told them. I never want to dwell on my disability, but trying to hide it from yourself or others just reinforces the idea that disability is something to be ashamed of. But how can I help change attitudes about disability if I can't even acknowledge my own? How can I hope for a world that's fully accessible if I can't even tell people when I have trouble getting around? I was always afraid that if I admitted I was disabled that people would treat me differently or that they'd expect me to act differently. I'd see disabled people portrayed in TV shows or films in ways that were just far from reality. They were either models of inspiration or bitter and unable to cope. Was I going to end up like Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump, rolling around a trashy apartment in a wheelchair, looking for a bottle of Ripple while telling Forrest Gump and God to kiss my crippled ass? I've met disabled people who are really inspirational, and I've met some who get frustrated from time to time. But mostly, disabled people just live their lives like everyone else. There are things I can't do anymore that I miss, and a lot of them have gone away gradually. I remember trying to take a short bike ride many years ago and struggling with it enough to know that it would be my last time on a bike. 
When my son played hockey, I used to imagine how great it would be to join him on the ice just once for a game of one-on-one. -on -one. Or when my daughter was a baby, I would think about what it would be like just to be able to pick her up from the ground and hold her over my head and swing her around to make her laugh. But I've got lots of great memories of the great times I had with my kids and other things I've done, and I, I try not to waste a lot of time thinking about the things I can't do. But I have spent time trying to figure out how all this fits into what it means to identify as someone who's disabled. I read a quote from a disability activist named Liz Jackson that had a real impact on me. She said that oftentimes disability means an inability to choose your own identity. Your identity is sort of chosen for you. So how do you take control of that identity without being defined by it? Back then I didn't really have an answer. For years I'd been hiding it, but a cane is something you can't hide. I had to accept the fact that I need a cane to help me walk around when I'm outside and sometimes even when I'm inside. I was starting to fall on a more regular basis and I was pretty sure it was only a matter of time before I broke something. I couldn't always keep my balance or walk upstairs easily or step over curbs without one. This realization hit around the time of my 40th birthday. At first I put off using one, likely just because a cane is so strongly linked with being old. It just seems so foolish when I think about it now. The first cane I finally did decide to use was called a travel cane. This type of cane can be folded up and packed away when you're done using it. To me this was perfect and I used it on my way to work. So every day about a block from work I would fold up the cane and hide it in my backpack. I thought that if nobody saw me walk in with my cane that my secret was safe. So on this one really cold January day I was close to work and I went to fold up my cane like I did every morning and, and it was just stuck. It was just completely frozen together and so I spent a few minutes in the freezing cold just struggling to try and pry this cane apart and I took my gloves off to do it and my hands were really cold and I was, I was just trying to force it apart and, and, and it just hit me how ridiculous it all was. So I just headed into the building and I was just bracing myself for all the staring and the nosy questions that would come up when I walked in using a cane. And I, I got off the elevator and I headed for my workstation and nothing happened. I saw a few people in the hall and nobody said anything. That's just a bit of luck, I thought, so I tried it again the next day and nothing happened. Or the next day, or the next day, or really any day. Finally being more open about using a cane was a big change for me, but I still wasn't very open about why. Part of the reason I think it's been so hard for me to come out about my disability is that I've never talked to anyone else with Becker muscular dystrophy. It's a rare condition and I've never met anyone else who has it, but I've never really looked either, and I decided it was time to change that. It only took a quick search on Twitter to find someone else with Becker's, Michael Moore is a vice principal living in Toronto. I sent him a message and asked if we could talk. Hello, Michael Moore. Hi, Michael. It's uh, Kent Hoffman calling. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. Uh, do you have a moment to talk right sure. now? Yep. I feel nervous calling him. It feels a bit like being called to the principal's office. I thought it might be awkward for us to talk, but we do have one big thing in common. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a relatively rare disease. Right, and even in terms of muscular dystrophy, that's not one of the most common kinds. And even in people's mind, most people don't know about Becker's, but they think mostly about Duchenne. 
Yeah, exactly, right? Like, a lot of people don't even know it exists. Yeah. Or even if I say I have MD, most people hear MS. Exactly. Yeah, I'm got... very clear, but they think of MS. Yeah, exactly. I get that same thing. So mm -hmm. That same confusion that Michael talked about happened to me a number of times over the years. It became clear to me very quickly that Michael and I share many of the exact same experiences. I was wondering why it had taken me so long to reach out with someone else with Becker muscular dystrophy. You said you're 52? Yeah, that's right. And so us still walking, that's, uh, that's not that common in yeah. your 50s to still be walking. We're quite fortunate. But mostly in common, though, most people are not working in their 40s, 50s. Mm -hmm. um, but I've heard of very few people that are still working even in their 30s, 40s. Yeah, yeah. No, I've worked here for 30 years, and I consider myself pretty lucky because of that. I guess around the time I was 40... I started using a cane outside all the time, and mm -hmm. so I I still walk around inside without a cane because, you know, there's carpeting and things to lean against, and it's not so bad, but outside I pretty much exclusively use a cane all the time, and that's gone pretty well, and what I find now is more it's just getting up and down is sort of the added kind of problem, and of course, you know, stairs are always the issue, right? So, so you can stand up unaided? That's, yeah, like I need to lean on a table, or something, but I... With your hands. Yeah. Yeah, I progressed beyond that the last couple of years. It became very difficult to just use my hands to get up. Plus, I've really sort of screwed up my left shoulder. Oh, the amount right? of um, of um, pressure that I was putting on it getting up and down really has messed it up. Yeah. And so now I put like a chair in front of me. Mm-hmm with arms and then I put my knee on the chair in front of me and then use my knee on that chair and then my arms to lift me up. Oh, I, see. I can't, I can't stand anymore. And my, my um, specialist actually said you lose the ability to stand before you lose the ability to walk. Oh, I see. So, yeah. But really, if you're not experiencing like the later stages, there's very little that they, that they can say or do. Yeah. And the disease is so variable mm -hmm. that they can't even make a prognosis or a prediction even for an individual, really. Michael hit on an aspect of this that's really hard to deal with sometimes, that it's just so hard to predict what will happen. The last time I saw a specialist, she seemed impressed that I was still walking over the age of 50, but I just don't know how long that'll last. But again, just talking to Michael for a short time, it was reassuring to find out how many experiences and feelings about this that we shared. Yeah, and it's funny you mentioned the shoulder problems because I've sort of lately been having that issue of just, yeah, putting a lot of strain on the left shoulder, right, from you know, exactly what you talk about. So That's why you might consider, try it sometime, get an armchair in front of you mm -hmm. and then put one knee on it and then lift yourself up using your, your legs and your shoulders. It's less strain on your shoulder. Okay. I'll practice that at home a bit and uh, yeah. try that out. Michael had lots of helpful suggestions, and I asked if we could stay in touch. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you today. It uh, you know, means a lot to be able to talk to someone else with the same thing. I know. I know the feeling. He really did know the feeling, and after talking to Michael, I felt a lot less alone. I think we spend so much time trying to prove that we're independent that we refuse to reach out to people or ask for help when we need it. But we all need help, 
I think we have this human need to be helped because it shows that other people care about us. But yet we still feel kind of ashamed to ask for it. A few years ago I was on my way home and crossing a busy street in downtown Toronto. It was a stormy winter day and I sensed the wind picking up. And suddenly there were these huge gusts of wind and I was, I was struggling to walk in it just like everybody else. And I was halfway across the street and this huge gust just took me down like a leaf. So I found myself lying on the street and looking up from the ground and I was a bit stunned and I could see the tires of the cars coming towards me and hoping they were going to stop. But then I realized I wasn't going to be able to get up on my own. And this whole group of people just gathered around me and they all worked together to get me back on my feet, which really wasn't easy. The driver seemed to realize what was happening and nobody was honking their horns or getting impatient about it. But after they got me up, I was still only about halfway across the street and I could still feel the wind gusting. I knew that there was a pretty good chance I was going to fall again. And one of the people there who had already helped me must have picked up on the look on my face. And he just put his arm around me and told me to hold on to him. He was a complete stranger, but we walked across the street, arm in arm, and he got me to the entrance of a building that would allow me to walk the rest of the way indoors. Before he left, he asked me if I was okay, and I quickly tried to explain to him what had happened and why. And he just stopped me and told me not to worry about it. And I thanked him, and we both went on our way. I, I never found out his name, and I never saw him again but I felt grateful that someone would just help out a stranger like that. I'm likely going to need more help and support as time goes by, but so will everyone. Telling people that I have Becker muscular dystrophy is just a way of asking the world for a bit of extra patience, and to help me out from time to time just like that stranger did, without questions, without judgment, and without expecting anything in return. Kent Hoffman. That doc was produced by Kent. It was edited by Allison Cook. It originally aired in May of 2020 and took home a bronze medal at the New York Festival's Radio Awards in 2021. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Sherry O'KK, Kevin Ball, Allison Cook, Tanara McLean, Joan Weber, and me. Althea Manassen is our digital producer, and our interim senior producer is Kent Hoffman. I am AC Rowe, and before I let you go, if you love this show, please let other people know. I'm a poet. If wherever you are listening has a space where you can rate and review, please do. Five stars and some kind words go a long way to keeping us afloat and giving other people a reason to check us out. All right. Thanks, friends. Talk next week. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.